This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Jared Henriquez. Jared is the founder of Renga. Renga is a group of creative thinkers and makers that build brands the future can be proud of. In this episode, we discuss how Jared started Renga, what he means by brand therapy, and how founders should think about brand. Please enjoy my conversation with Jared Henriquez. Jared, I'd love to start with your time at university. It looked like you started with a mechanical engineering degree and ended up doing a BCom. Uh, why the pivot there in university? Yeah. It's, uh, so I, I, growing up, I was always a math and science guy, um, kind of always, you know, excelled in math and physics and it kind of always just made a lot of sense, uh, to move into engineering. Um, really at the end of the day, what I learned now in retrospect is what I really wanted to do was like design, uh, like sporting equipment and, and different products but coming from the math and science bent as that was always kind of my my trajectory in in high school and i think as i've come later to realize like industrial design is actually a thing and it's something i'm really interested in but 
Um, I already got one piece of paper and part of a different one. So I never went back to do industrial design. Who knows what later uh, happens there. But for me, it was, I think that the world of business was always attractive to me um, because of my proclivity for math. I always thought I'd go get an undergrad in engineering and then do an MBA. And kind of after that first year, I had started my first business and was like doing it in a full engineering course load and kind of just went, why am I, why am I enduring an engineering course load if my end game is actually just to get an MBA at anyways? So, um, I switched over to a BCom to, uh, lighten lighten the the academic load quite a bit in in the workload um in schooling and and just kind of focus on you know ex like external reading and building and experiment with that love for business uh you started a apparel company called pocket change was that mm -hmm. around that time and was yeah. that kind of getting your feet wet with the the business uh space I haven't talked about pocket change in a long time the um kind of the the instinct behind that was, I guess, I was at an event. There was an organization similar to a World Vision that sponsored children, um, and you know they were they were doing like kind of a call to sponsorship, and I was really intrigued and moved to do that, but just didn't have the cash. And I was kind of like, okay, why don't I have the cash as this like 16, 17 year old kid? Um, it's because I spend all my money on you know, food and, and music and clothes and stuff. And I'm like, well, I can't cook. I can't sing. Like, let's just make clothes. And whether or not people are aware of it, um, the profits will kind of go towards sponsoring kids. And so that was the impetus behind um, that. I think I've always had a bent to <laughs> be incredibly over-optimistic and say, why not just solve this uh, and try and make something? And and that was kind of the, the push there with Pocket Change was, um, yeah, so we started manufacturing clothes in Toronto, which is a whole challenge in and of itself. And, um, yeah, really design clothes. And, and the, the basic premise of it was whether or not you were aware, um, the money was going to be used for social good. And at the time, so we ended up launching that May, 2010. And in that time, there was really only Tom's, um, there was like to write love in our arms, skate for cancer, like this idea of like social entrepreneurship specifically like in the clothing and apparel space was starting to pick up, but um, it wasn't really widespread by any means. Um, and so it was really fun. And I think like, you know, as we continue to grow and do that, had a couple offers for a bit more expansion and um, funding. And I just knew like I'd, I had made some mistakes of doing it on my own. Some of my team was um, kind of getting recruited into jobs that paid them money. Um, unlike, unlike my, uh, quote unquote, uh, for-profit, uh, social organization. Um, and yeah, you know, it just kind of made sense to, to wind that down as I was, uh, wrapping up school. And after school, what happens then? Are you, are you, you know, you do the BCom, you end up at Shopify right after school or, or what happens there? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, in that time of starting, um, that first business, you know, you, you run a business for about three months and then everyone around you thinks like, you know what you're doing and uh, they bring all of their business ideas to you. And that's actually what I fell in love with hearing other people talk about their ideas for businesses, things that they wanted to see made in the world. And, and I learned really quickly that um, I loved working with 
entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial people and helping them map out what those big ideas were and helping them actualize them. And so I always knew I was going to work with founders in some capacity. I didn't really know what that looked like at the time. And so um, having been a merchant at Shopify, I fell in love with the company and just applied to work there because I figured, hey, I can get paid to talk to entrepreneurs all day and just learn a little bit more about what sort of challenges and opportunities they see. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was a pretty interesting time uh, for a short stint at Shopify. I was there for basically all of 2015, started in January, left at the end of December. Um, and in 2015 is when Shopify IPO'd. So, you know, really watching that rocket ship take off was quite fascinating. And you know, after your time at Shopify, did you jump into Renga right away? Had you been working on it on the side? You know, I think there's a kind of an underlying theme here of you just really wanting to support others and have like that platform. And it seems like you turned a, made a business out of that. Yeah. So I, I, the idea of Renga was kind of always there and ever present um, while I was at Shopify. But I actually ended up leaving Shopify to go work for a hi-fi audio company. Um, kind of legacy brand had been around for 40 plus years, had always done uh, work through, um, you know, distributor networks and how that works. And so B2B, and they really wanted to explore what um, B2C really looked like. And I went there to kind of work with them. And I mean, my wife and my therapist thought it was a really stupid move for me to do. And they were probably right. But I think like what I learned at this company is the challenge and difficulty of getting clarity and alignment um, inside an organization. You come from a place like Shopify who champions this like anti-fragile mentality of like, let's just break things before they break and, and keep doing all of this stuff. And you can quickly get disillusioned that this is how every organization works, that change is really easy, um, that you can just lock the door and say, hey, we're not using desk anymore we're just going to switch to chat today all a thousand people just figure it out right which were common practices at shopify but really what i got from moving to this legacy business was an incredible amount of empathy in understanding how difficult organizational change is how difficult it is to get the marketing and the product and all of those teams to be building and speaking the same language how it's really up to leadership to communicate and articulate um, these core objectives. And, and that's kind of where I really built that thesis of mine that brand is a framework for internal decision making much more than it is marketing and external communication. Why do you think, you know, whether it's tech entrepreneurs or, you know, um, traditional industry, why do people really struggle with with brand more than I, I'd say I'd say people struggle with brand more than any other part of their business? And why do you think that is? Yeah, I think it's hard for founders to see the forest through the trees. Um, you you get so close to all of the different things that you want to do that you're thinking about. Um, that you don't take the time to really communicate and articulate to other people to ensure that there is clarity. And then you're also mixed with this reality that constantly every day there's opportunities and challenges that 
try and knock you off that path of what you're really trying to do. And um, sometimes like short-term cash flow is a crisis and you got to make decisions that might compromise brand a little bit, but it's about staying in business. And then you tell yourself these lies that like, oh, well, we'll just get sorted and then we'll come back and and then you find yourself on a different path. And so I think like, you know, we, we've always called our process brand therapy um, and it's continually held up over time because of exactly what you're talking about. Therapy is an ongoing process. It's never done. And it's really not a good idea to therapize yourself um, because you have a hard time seeing the forest through the trees. Right. And I'm so empathetic to that because last year I lost sight of our brand as a branding studio while giving this advice to hundreds of founders um, over the last couple of years. And yeah, you know, we're a cash flow sensitive bootstrap studio. And sometimes we had to like make some decisions to make sure we could run payroll and do some of this stuff. And and I started veering away from the brand that we really had the intention of Renga being. And it's easy to do. And it really requires a whole bunch of humility and a whole bunch of um, support to say, okay, cool. No, we're on the wrong track. Like we need to reorient ourselves. We need to get clear on who we are and where we want to go and build a new course. And I think, yeah, I, I think it makes a lot of sense why people have a hard time uh, kind of sticking on brand because it's hard and you change and you evolve and the dynamic of your customers and competition are constantly evolving. Brands are dynamic. They're not static. And we often view them as static entities. It's an interesting point there with dynamic versus static. How do you make sure that you remain static without, you know, kind of chasing everything or, you know, you're changing every month? Like, is there a cadence that you should be working on? Like, should you be reevaluating every six months, every 12 months and making small changes that seem more natural? Like, or is it just kind of different depending on brands? Yeah. So the way that we kind of think about that is, um, the start of the brand and really defining that is getting clear in your identity. I think, you know, self-awareness and self-identity and really establishing that and codifying that, um, you know, every marketing textbook tells me that I'm supposed to like draw a beautiful hierarchical triangle that really captures my identity for every decision, but that's just not how decisions work. Right. And I think the way that we look at the brand identity and one of the things that we've always done at Renga is we personify the brand itself. And part of that is a person, it's easy to understand this dynamic nature of multiple factors that are both informing and informed by each other, right? We call those kind of three points in the identity, your purpose, your promise, and your pillars. Basically, why you exist and what you're trying to bring and the rules that you want to win, right? Um, these are the things that are going to act as a compass for making these decisions. And a lot of the time when we personify and, and capture this, this person in a brand, we give them a name outside of the founder's name and like really create this identity. It's then about asking these questions. What would this person do, right? In this circumstance, when presented with these options, with the complexities of the context and everything around what this decision means, what would we do if we were making a brand first decision? Because when, when you have the vehicle to ask that question, 
it becomes, it's usually a relatively obvious answer, right? Um, but when you're like, hey, I'm a human being and here's like short-term cash flow and all this stuff, like, yeah, that that's a whole other part of the, the equation that needs to make a lot of sense um, and, and needs to contribute into the discernment. But um, when we're actually talking about making brain-first decisions, I think it's about appreciating the the dynamic nature of the landscape around you and really rooting yourself um, in that current moment and defining who you are and where you want to go. And so then there's like this external layer. So if we have this identity, then it's intention, right? Like, what is it that we want to bring? And that's where a lot of the dynamic comes through because it's, okay, who are we speaking to? What's the context that we're speaking within? All of that stuff. And so I like to think if you're changing your identity, like who you are and where you want to go, you're, that's a pretty dramatic change. Like that should not change very often, if ever. It sometimes needs to be reclarified and like recaptured and and brought back to our attention. But like there's very, I wouldn't say that there's like a, a frequent cycle that this needs to be overhauled because that's going to be the crux of your entire business. But the intention layer, like, you know, if that's changed on a, annual basis, let's say, I think quarterly is probably a little too much is like, how, how is everything changing? Like, sure, we really believed that this was the best foot forward. But like, how do we actually evaluate um, the way our customers or the competitors or the landscape around us has evolved? Where, how do we approach and arrive ourselves with the rootedness in this identity? How do we approach this circumstance? And then after that intention layer, it's the expression layer, which is how do we actually show up, right? So we're clear on who we are. We're clear of like the context and the community that we're speaking to. Now, how do we actually decide to present ourselves? And it is the goal for that intention to match the perception, right? And so I think like the further you veer out from the center of that identity, the higher the frequency is for changing. Um, but like it's it's really that that identity becomes the sandbox for you to play in and determine right and and i think like especially when we come to marketers you know it's a lot of a b testing a lot of optimizing generally for short-term metrics right and if we allow allow the the best short-term metrics to drive the future of our brand that's where we're in trouble now if we're finding the best short-term metrics within the sandbox that we're saying all of these items within here are on brand and we've actually defined the parameters we say experiment and explore and try and optimize as much as possible but don't you dare get outside of that sandbox that's when we're able actually to um, supercharge the marketing because not only is the marketing performing really well in the short term but it's actually building the brand which creates a whole bunch of longevity and sustainability moving forward when is the best stage for a company to be obviously probably day one <laughs> um but where does Renga engage? Are you like looking for like early stage ventures or maybe an idea stage? How do you even find those people? And I guess second part to that question, I've been reading the Steve Jobs book yeah. and how do you, from a brand perspective, how do you like go over multiple decades and changes and launch new products while like Apple's done a fantastic job of keeping, I feel like the, the ethos of like their brand, even though they've launched tons of product? Yeah, I think so. So the first question on the right timing, I think, like you said, day one is always a great time to be mindful and really set your intentions and be purposeful about that. Um, but I think the most common 
time that we really see people approach us is in a season of change or in that moment that they captured product market fit. So often you're just throwing stuff against the wall to see what hits and then you get product market fit and you're like, okay, we're ready for marketing. But wait, what actually worked? We've just changed a whole bunch of stuff. There's like all these other things. We don't know what the common thread is. We're ready to like tell everybody about it because we found it. And that's usually the moment where it's like, I don't know, let's just run A-B tests and see what performs best. And then your brand kind of quickly gets away from you. And so where we are best is sitting down and saying, okay, cool. You, fa- you validated your product. You validated the offering. Now let's actually talk, talk about that moment you decided to even approach this. Because building a business is really hard. And for someone to decide to build a business, something needs to move them in a significant way. For someone to continue with a business enough to get to product market fit, they really need to be excited by it, right? And it's about finding the common thread, pulling in the things that they maybe haven't articulated or communicated for the last three to five years that they've been grinding to a point where it's like, oh yeah, okay, let's let's root ourselves in that that spot, figure out how we, how to codify that and expand that so that you as the founder do not need to be involved in every single decision moving forward, but you've done the deep work to remove your identity from this identity and say, this is who we are. We're inviting more people to continue and build on this journey and expand and grow over time. I love that. And then for a brand that's, you know, maybe they're series A, series B, and they're launching a new product, whether, you know, not everything has to be as big as Apple, but um, you have like a strong brand already, but you realize, hey, we need to expand into this space. And how does that, how does that, those conversations go? Yeah, we do. We, we've been doing a lot of this work where it's, hey, we're launching this new product and now we're kind of confused how our messaging works. Cause it's like, I think every client we've ever had suggests a choose your own adventure website because that's the best way for us to think about it. Right. Where it's like, okay, there's three people I want to talk to and these are three profitable products and I need them to all kind of be served um, appropriately. How do we communicate this well? And I think really, when it comes to expanding and adding new products into your offering, it's, is it still, is it still following the same purpose as to what your entire organization is about? Right. And so I think, you know, if we use the Apple example, if their purpose is building the highest quality tools for creativity to be explored or whatever that kind of um, jargon might be that they would kind of bring up, I'm sure there's one published somewhere, but let's assume that that's uh, close enough to what it is. I mean, a lot of their products are built from that, from that ethos, right? And so as long as it's still building from that ethos and it's really kind of geared towards the same target audience, but just expanding the capabilities um, within their offering, it's rarely an issue. The core challenge is when you're saying, hey, here's this avatar that we have and they have this other problem and what we solve it just is really convenient for us to also solve that problem because there's revenue to capture and when you're solving a core problem or providing a core benefit that's fundamentally different than your your original product um it's when messaging gets really really tricky right Uh, Because now you're trying to communicate two pain points 
two value propositions, two core dream outcomes to the same customer, and your business gets a little fragmented um, and your brand gets fragmented and it's, and it's hard to really get that through line. And so it's perfectly fine for that to evolve, um, but it's also fine to say, hey, maybe that's actually just a sub-brand, right? And we need to kind of move more into the house of brands type of um, model and and explore where that works. And, and it's usually case-by-case -case basis. There's not a hard and fast rule. Um, I think for me, it's if you're going to, the closest I could get to like a, a generalized rule would be if you're providing a core, a similar outcome for multiple customer segments, it might make more sense to um, kind of have a different brand that speaks really specific to that customer segment, where if you are solving a new problem for the same customer, um, it's often about evolving that brand to really find out the pain point under the pain point um, that you are really solving for this. Is there a difference when you're approaching like a B2B business versus a B2C business um, or do you believe that, you know, brand is important no matter who you're selling to? I guess like a good example would be like, you've worked a lot with Float, who is B2B, but then there's a B2C element in the sense of, you know, people have to use the software or the cards out in the real world. So how do you kind of like look at that? Are there nuances between those two different types of businesses or should every business look at brand the same? I think, hmm, interesting question. I think there's nuances for every business. So, um, I don't know if there's any clear processes or rule differences that we would make if it's B2B or B2C. Um, it's generally a similar process, which is starting with the the self-identity, right? Like, who are you? What do you want to bring to the world? And why do you want to do that? What's the context that you're communicating with? And then how do you actually show up, right? And so I think that's universal. The Whether we're selling to businesses or to humans... It's you're still talking, you're still writing stories to people and trying to solve pain points or provide opportunities. And so it's generally the same. I mean, it's going to maybe change a little bit in terms of like the 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 appearance, the visual identity, kind of the tone of voice. Like you have to like understand the context you're speaking within. But um, in terms of the impact of brand on the purchase, I don't think it it changes too much between B2B and B2C. I think where brand is definitely valued more on the D2C side and, and direct-to-consumer side is like that's usually the point of differentiation um, is usually the brand where the products are usually kind of same, same, but different. Um, where on B2B, it's generally a slightly different angle or approach or kind of more complex value stack than this is just an item that we sell, but beautifully done, right? So um, that's kind of, I think, the, the core difference is B2B generally has a little bit more of a complex story where direct-to-consumer is like a little bit more of a evoking of a feeling and emotion. Yeah. You, you, you buy things that you want to associate your identity to in direct to consumer with B2B. You're solving it. 
you're buying something that provides a utility or a service, right? It's it's rarely like, man, I just absolutely love the way Slack makes me feel. I never use it. I still use Teams, but like I'm going to choose Slack because of how it makes me feel. It's like, no, no, no. It's it's about the utility in, in this case. So that's probably the core difference. I love that. Um, Ranga's definitely become known for their pitch decks. I know that's not everything you do, but it's definitely something that's become quite mm-hmm. popular, especially on on Twitter. Um, how, how did you get into that? How did you think that was like, obviously that aligns with brand, but how did you get into that? And how did you kind of find, you know, this works and this definitely does not work? Yeah, I think. So I'm not a designer. I started a design studio. I have no agency experience and I started an agency. Um, the impetus behind starting Rango was really the strategy de- strategy led design firm, right? Like we developed the design discipline, frankly, because we didn't think people would believe that we were really good storytellers because it's kind of like New York's best cup of coffee. Everyone says it and it's not until you experience it. Can you actually validate that it's true? And for us, Pitch Decks is a little bit of that tasting. Um, Pitch Decks for us is a really good way to flex our storytelling chops to say like, no, we're not just good at making things look beautiful. We're really good at taking your business and helping you tell your story in a way that you've never been able to. And that's kind of what we do with the Pitch Decks and continue to do. Uh, We always did them just off like the side of our desk. Um, But then, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a skill set that it's candidly, I just love doing it. It's probably one of my favorite things. Like uh, that's, you know, a bit of my superpower is to be able to kind of sit down, go through a deck first time and very quickly reconstruct the narrative. And for me in fundraising, that's the missing part for so many founders. Um, everyone's trying to convince you why their business investment. It's a really bad approach. You need to communicate why this business, you need to create empathy as to where the investor would see themselves as a potential customer or them or someone they know. And the goal is not to get an investment at the end of the call. The goal is to have a whole bunch of excited questions where they go, I wonder about this. What about this? And I like to view these pitch decks as the first date. Your only obligation is to say, this is what I'm about. This is who I am. And um, this is why we are on this pursuit, right? What's the problem you're trying to solve? What is your hypothesis to solve it? Why are you the right people to fulfill that hypothesis? That's it. And if they're interested, sweet. <laughs> They'll probably book a follow-up call. If not, save yourself some time, right? Like the goal of the pitch deck is to find the right investors, not to convert every investor. I like that difference. Um, you mentioned a few times now, like earlier in the call, you mentioned Bootstrapped and you know, you've started your own studio, your own agency, and you've never done that before. How has that experience been like growing Ranga um, and expanding the team as you go? Because I'm assuming it was just you in the beginning. How did you, I feel like that's a huge hurdle. It's like, okay, I need to hire someone now. And what what was that like? Yeah, it's it's been hard. Um, I think, you know, scaling and growing the team. I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot. Unfortunately, we had to do some layoffs in August and um left me in my journal a lot reflecting on 
you know, where we actually lost sight of our own brand um, and all of these different components. And I think for a client services firm like us, one of the core issues that we ran into is we work with all these venture-backed companies. And I think we started to behave a little bit like those types of businesses because that was who we were working with. And when you're cash flow sensitive and bootstrapped, it's just a, a completely different operating model. And the thing that matters is not optimizing for valuation. It's op operating, op like optimizing for profit and runway and all of those different types of components. And candidly, my sanity and being able to like play with my kids and go to sleep. And like, that's kind of what needed to be optimized for. Um, and I think like we were a little too aggressive investing our available capital and growth that we didn't leave ourselves enough runway to like really weather the feast and famine nature of client services. And so I think for me, like some of the lessons that I learned, it's yeah, grow slow and intentional, which was always felt like what we were doing in, in the intentional part, but I'm not super great at patience. And I also think it's like the, I'm overly optimistic, like to a fault. And I just always believe that it's going to kind of work out. And that's a bit of my superpower. So I don't want to get rid of that, but I needed more systems and people in place to check me on uh, making sure we're not, you know, <laughs> only accounting for the uh, good scenario uh, and potential outcome, but that we, we really do have kind of that bandwidth. So, I mean, yeah, it's been, it's been a challenge. I think, you know, if I were to do it over again, for me in client services, I think the rhythm is get completely overbooked, then get to your target mar margin, then scale the team. Once you're fully booked to your target margin, I think we were trying to like scale to fulfill the demand more and thinking that we could increase like the margin and refine the process a little bit later. But the issue is, is when you're investing into team and overhead with those kind of smaller margins, um, you're not able to like catch up nearly as fast. Right. And so for us, it's, you know, how do we really build a durable business versus um, something growing quick? And I think like we, yeah, got a little high on our own supply of like chasing growth and some of those vanity metrics and where that worked versus really focusing on durability. With the feast or famine uh, piece you mentioned there, in a service-based business, how do you, do you just kind of have to accept the fact that it's feast and famine and you got to kind of roll with the punches or is there a way that you can really, you know, make things a bit more consistent, at least a little bit? Uh, you know, in terms of how many clients you're working with spread out on a particular schedule, or is it really just ride the wave? I mean, I think it's a bit of both, right? Like, I think there's an inevitability of that truth, but also don't like be scared, right? So give yourself the right parameters. Hey, we're going to have X months of cash in account at all times. That's like kind of our, our backup. But, um, yeah, like try and build durability in the business in multiple ways. So try and increase the more repeat income as possible. Try and get retainers. Try and like have be booking months out in advance and not use that as a sign to like 
oh, we need to hire people because we need to be able to start tomorrow with every client, right? So there's a lot of different practices that you can kind of do in that. Um, I think it's an inevitability that sometimes it'll just be slower. And so there is a little bit of you have to ride the wave no matter what, but I think you can ride the wave intelligently. Um, and yeah. How do you balance um, the creative aspects of the business with like the financials and keeping the lights on? I feel like, mm. how do you know that, you you know, how do you get to that point where, hey, we've done a fantastic job. This is a great thing going out the door, but you don't spend that like extra percentage of time where you just, it takes way, way too long and you, and you barely make an impact. How do you know that fine line? Yeah, I mean, it's something we're still continually trying to refine, right? I'd be lying if I said we have have that on lock. Because um, at the end of the day, like we're proud of the work that we do and we want to put up good work. And when you're doing creative work like this, you can't force inspiration and force brilliant ideas. And so, you know, spending... It's not like, oh, I know I have to spend eight hours at this desk and then I'm going to completely crack this. Um, sometimes it's 30 seconds and sometimes it's 30 days, right? And so how you're able to still hit timelines, put work out that you're proud of while like appreciating the challenge of creative work is tricky. And so for us, like we like to really give all of our team a lot of time like there's not a lot of meetings that we have um people really kind of get a lot of deep work time um you know focus on kind of the the more asynchronous communication where we can but then having that scheduled synchronous stuff where you can learn to be stuck together um i think that's one of the challenges of doing creative work remotely is there's a lot of power in sitting in a room looking at a whiteboard when no one knows what they're doing but you're doing that together and that is something that's hard to like replicate right so um trying to figure out the right way to do that is important but yeah no it's it's constantly a balance it's it's okay yeah we our current theory is charge more for outcomes than necessarily hours in and and that way we kind of gain some of the efficiencies if we can crack them and give ourselves some of that buffer if they're not there. Um, and then we're not just losing crazy on the margin. Um, but yeah, I don't know if someone has a, a perfect recipe to weather this, I am all ears. So, uh, <laughs> shoot me a note. With, with that creative element there, how do, how do you remain creative? Is that just something you naturally have? I feel like a lot of people, after childhood and stuff, maybe lose that creative spark, whether it's the work they're doing, university, whatever that may be. Uh, are there particular things that help you out? Yeah. I mean, so I would define create creativity as connecting things. And I think the reason why we see our creativity deplete over time is because our the variety of our inputs deplete over time. And so I actually think it's unreasonable to keep going to the same sources and doing the same things and expecting new connections to unlock. Um, and so for me, it's actually about tasting and testing lots of different things, whether it's new software, new industries, new topics that I'm interested in, um, just being a generally curious person. And for us, that's 
actually exactly why I started <laughs> an agency. Um, I didn't want to start a client services firm uh, because of all the things we just talked about in the previous answer um, is that it's it's really hard. But for me, I didn't know what I wanted to build yet. I'm still young and I figured this is going to be a really great way for me to test and explore a whole bunch of other industries and have ended up falling in love with the actual like agency model and, and the studio model, um, despite what I thought I was getting myself into. And I still get to taste and test all of these different industries. And so for us, it's like between pitch decks, between um, brand projects, all these things, we get to do deep dives and wrestle with the nuances of all of these different industries on a daily basis um, and trying to tell stories in those contexts. And so for me, it's never been a challenge really to kind of keep that creativity open because we're just getting so many different perspectives uh, inbound in our, in our brains all the time. So with those inputs, I, I think that's an interesting thread to expand on. With, with the inputs there, um, as you mentioned, you are working with lots of different types of businesses. So do you find like expanding those inputs, whether it's reading or whatever that may be, really helps you go, okay, well, now I'm talking to like a fintech business that's, you know, selling to this type of customer, like a CFO versus, you know, maybe a marketing brand that's selling software to a CMO. Um, so I guess, yeah, I just want to dive a bit deeper into, you know, how do you kind of like talk to a business and really learn what their problems are um, from a brand perspective? Is that just inputs and you have that kind of creative spark going on? Yeah, I think it's, again, it's appreciating that founders start a business for a reason, right? And getting to hear the story of why and how you started a business is usually full of a whole bunch of insights, almost all the insights you need to really start to understand even that industry and the core challenge behind it, right? And I think it's like by nurturing that curious side and continuing to just ask questions and to not try and pretend you are an industry expert is the best way to really learn, right? Is because you're going to ask the stupid question and you're going to ask the thing because you, the only thing that matters is that you are clear on what this business does. Like I say to our strategists all the time is like, the end of the day, the only thing that matters is that their entire team is clear and aligned on who they are and where they're going. And if we are meant to facilitate that, we need to be clear on who they are <laughs> and where they are going. And so like, there's no clear, you know, survey, um, train of questions. There's definitely starting points. And it's why I'm, you know, more than happy to share all of our process stuff. Cause there's, there's nothing about it. That is the secret sauce. The secret sauce is the willingness to say, the process can only get you so far. And it's about the follow-up questions and the ability to ask the question under the question and dive deep to a point of clarity in understanding why that business actually exists. That is the only thing that matters. And so there's nothing really scalable about that. There's nothing like super repeatable in it other than just like be curious and ask interesting questions um, and, and try and understand. So, uh, yeah. What do you think about the concept of, you know, I don't want to say copy in sort of like a negative sense, but brands that might copy or, you know, you know, take things from other brands to like 
build their brand or should people be starting from scratch? Like, how do you look at that of like, hey, there's some similarities here uh, compared to this like very well-known brand. Should we copy certain elements? Yeah, I think. Hmm. I don't have an issue with it if it's communicating what you want to communicate well, right? Like, I all you and I are doing right now is I am regurgitating a whole bunch of inputs that I've had over time and putting my own spin on things that I've heard and things I've listened and things I've experienced. And like, that's what we do as humans. That's what we do as creatives. And that's our core skill set. And so to be inspired and influenced by other brands and have that become evident in the output that arrives is natural. Now, if you're just saying, hey, I like this business, they're industry leaders, let's just like copy the the line that they're using here or the exact color palette or some of those different components, like you're not trying to communicate that. You're actually just trying to like craft a facade that is meant to be successful. And the thing that we talk a lot about is because our process is called brand therapy, like you don't go to therapy to find the most friends. You go to therapy to understand who you are and to attract the right people into your universe, right? And if you're playing the game of therapy to just try and accrue the numbers, like rarely is that super sustainable or have much longevity or much depth into it. And so I would say brands that are doing the same would have the same outcomes. He touched a bit more on, on brand therapy. Uh, obviously you don't need to go th mm -hmm. through like your full process, but <laughs> what are some interesting tactics that you use there? Yeah, I think it's just asking a lot of questions and, and really getting to the question under the question, right? Like I think we settle too often for the marketing copy, uh, like the H1 of the website to be like your company's purpose or your company's mission where it's, it's rarely the case. I think it's about acknowledging and giving permission that like what we are trying to capture and understand is for internal use, not for customer use. It's about really aligning everybody internally on who you are and where you want to go. And it doesn't have to be catchy. It doesn't have to like have a fun conversion rate um, in what it says, but it just needs to be really clear on who you are. And so I think the only way to do that is really with a whole bunch of questions. And so, you know, for us, we basically ask enough questions until we deeply understand the business. We deeply understand where they want to go with that business and kind of the motivation from start for starting that business. Um, and then one of the things that we've always done is we use that spot as a starting point to basically ask the question, you know, let's, let's pretend you overheard someone at a bar talking about what are the four to five adjectives you'd be so stoked to hear them say about you. And what are the like three to four that you would literally want to crawl under the table if you heard them just, um, the business, right. And starting with how you want to be perceived while rooting in some of that is usually a really good place to start uncovering and asking the questions of why is it that that's really important. And so, um, 
those kind of adjectives are generally a pretty good starting point for us building out that persona. Um, but it's a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the questions as to why is that the right word? Is this a better word? Hey, would this be better? Like what, if we were to just get rid of this word, what is missing and what you want to communicate and spending a lot of time on, on some of those things, which sometimes, yeah, like I, you know, a lot of technical founders, sometimes when we do this exercise, it's like, what the hell are we doing in this abstract, like exercise around semantics? Like it doesn't matter. Just go get me one that works, but it also matters incredibly, right? Because it's not about a bunch of catch word, like buzzwords that are meant to like, there's no set of buzzwords that magically unlocks new sales and growth for your business. The only thing that does that is clarity and alignment on what those words actually mean and how they impact every single business decision that you make moving forward. And so that's our goal is get everyone on the founding team to be aligned on what those words mean and whether or not they're the right words. That's a great exercise. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round and yeah. on the on the thread of inputs, what's your favorite book? Or maybe one that you're reading right now that you like. Hmm. Yeah, I I've been I've been reading and rereading uh, Greg McEwen's uh, Essentialism and Effortless, um, just full of a bunch of wisdom. Really, really like like those. I think Austin Kleon has those three books: The Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, and Keep Going. Um, they're always sitting on my desk, and I always kind of thumb through them um, when I have kind of a down moment. Um, yeah, those are probably some of the ones that really stick out. Uh, yeah. I'll have to check those out. Uh, what are you most excited about this year, whether professional and or personal? Hmm. I think, you know, for me, 2022 kicked my ass a bit. Um, and you know, the, some of the mistakes that were made in the business, the, in the stress that they kind of like evolved and expanded into, I have two young kids. So like balancing, <laughs> building a business while building a family, um, and all of that stuff. Like I, I was pretty worn down at the end of last year. And I think for me, what I did at the beginning of the year is like even sharing some of that burden with my team, um, with my wife, uh, with like friends has brought such a lightness to me in these first couple months. And I think like a bit of ability to focus on kind of being present um, with the world that's happening around me versus just being in perpetual firefighting mode. And so I'm most excited about continuing that and, and hopefully not falling back into some of those old behaviors and really just enjoying friends and family and having more grace and patience for myself on kind of building the business. And it's amazing when you invite people in to help share the burden. It's like, not only does it get lighter, but you actually can travel far. <laughs> and I think, yeah, it's, uh, it's been really exciting. So I'm just kind of excited to see how that keeps playing out. I love that. And final question before I open the floor up to you, but, uh, and you know, we've touched on this a few times during our conversation, but how do you deal with, with hard times? Mm. Um, you know, you said 22, 2022 kicked your ass a little bit. Is there specific things that you do that help you out? I mean, 
healthy things, like not as much. It's like I'm learning a little bit more of just like that perspective of sharing, um, of taking a minute to just take a walk and unplug. Um, I think for me, one of the lies that we tell ourselves a lot in like Twitter, LinkedIn culture of startup world is that progress is inevitable and everyone's got the, the podcast appearance, the article, the, the award, the accolade. And I think it's like just really hard. Um, and I think you need to be okay with the fact that it's hard and be vulnerable and find people who can understand the difficulty that it is. I think for me, that was one of the harder parts was, you know, growing up in my town and kind of hanging out in the, in the burbs for my whole life. I didn't really build a big founder, um, friend group. And so a lot of my friends that I hang out with all the time are like childhood friends that are doing very non-founder things and it felt lonely. Right. And so I think community is one of the most important things. Um, and then, yeah, just, just have grace on yourself. Everyone's trying their best. And I, I know I often feel pressure from the world of Twitter, seeing, you know, people who are younger than me doing 10 times, uh, the output or the exit or whatever that looks like. And I think it's really easy to fall victim to that kind of self-effacing mentality. And I don't know. I just think, I think an interesting realization that I've had about imposter syndrome is that it literally never goes away. And if that's true, then we probably should stop realizing or stop imagining that some amount of success will cure our imposter syndrome, but it's actually the grace that we have for ourselves and the community of people that we surround ourselves with that help make that imposter syndrome more manageable to deal with because it will never go away. Um, And so, yeah, that's kind of where I've been lately on the hard stuff. I love that. Um, Jared, I really like to open up the floor to you how can people get in touch with you, learn more about Ranga, um, just any way to find you? Yeah, I mean, I'm at Jared Henriquez on Twitter. Um, that's probably one of the easier places to find me. Renga is R-E-N-G-A dot C-O. Right now it's an under construction page because shoemakers, children, dilemma, whatever that is. Uh, we, we should have a site shortly. Um, we're trying to find the time to work on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, find me on Twitter. That's going to be the best spot to do it. Um, my email is Jared at Ranga.co if you prefer the email communication. Awesome. Jared, this has been a lot of fun. Appreciate you coming on and thanks again. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.